Hello, and welcome to the Tower Hill Church Podcast. This is Marisa from the Tower Hill Production Team. Thanks so much for tuning in. Whenever or wherever you are listening from, we hope this podcast helps you grow in your faith, and we hope you share it with others so that they can grow in their faith too. When we say we have faith in Jesus, what exactly do we mean? In our fall sermon series called I Believe, Pastor Jason is digging deep so we can learn about the faith of the early church and how the framework of the Apostles' Creed can be an anchor in our modern-day belief. This week is part three, so let's listen in right now. We're coming back to this sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, It was great. I'm so thankful that Doug Eagles was able to fill in and to preach last week. He's great, isn't he? So uh, I got a lot of great feedback about that, and it enabled me to go to Northwest Arkansas. And uh, listen, I went to the mothership. All you Walmart fans out there, I went to the Walmart Museum. (laughs) It's a thing, and it's actually kind of interesting. It really is. So if any of my Arkansas friends are now watching this, I mean, truly, I had a great time. But uh, it's always good to be home and good to be back. And now we're continuing with the Apostles' Creed series. I did want to say this. If you're new today, or you're new in the last couple of weeks, I just want to let you know this sermon series is highly technical, because we're going over the beliefs of uh, Christianity, and it may feel like you're sort of shoved into the deep end of the pool. I just want you to know, it's not always like this. I just feel like I need to give that little disclaimer, because uh, really to dig into some of this stuff, we got to wrestle with some pretty big ideas. So... If you brought a bottle of water this morning about halfway through, just kind of, you know, just a quick hit. Make sure you're, you're uh, keeping up and you're awake. Okay. So uh, what I don't want to happen, and for many who grew up in the church, what I don't want to happen is what you see happen maybe even today when it's raining and you see sprinklers that are on in the middle of the rain, because those things are on autopilot, right? They're on a schedule and nobody thinks, oh, it's going to rain. Maybe I don't need to water the grass. I feel like it could be like that with our faith sometimes, where things are just on autopilot. We don't really think and dig deep and question even some of the things that that we're believing and living. I think it's important to to test your faith, to understand what is it that I say I believe, to take another look at this faith that, um, that I say that I have. So hopefully those who've been in the church a long time, you can feel like you can re-examine what you say we believe. Because really the question about the Apostles' Creed is, what do we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus? What do we mean? Because based on what we say, we can have a lot of different outcomes. In other words, the reason I think this is so important is because belief drives behavior. Let me give you an example. Let's say I believe that Jesus was just a nice guy. Right? He was a good dude. He was good people. He loved, he was a teacher, but there's no way that he was God. All right, he was just like, that all got blown out of proportion or whatever. He was just, he was a great guy. Godly, quote unquote, godly man. If I believe that, then I can just sort of pick and choose whatever Jesus amount I want in my life, along with other godly people or wise sages or poets or whatever. Like, I could build my own cafeteria-style religion, and I'll include Jesus, but I'm going to include a whole bunch of stuff that I think I like. It has a different pull on my life than if I say Jesus is 
the Son of God who died for my sins. That's a little different, the implications for me. So I think all of this, in a way, matters that we know what we're saying when we say, I believe in Jesus. I said, it's sort of like pole vaulting, something that I do every Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) When you're pole vaulting, you have to hit a strike plate. You don't hit the ground. You hit a strike plate to enable you to execute the jump. The strike plate is the technique to get you over the bar. I feel like the Apostles' Creed is the technique to get us over the bar of the Christian faith, to understand the faith that was handed down to us from the very first followers of Jesus. How do we ensure that that happens? Because listen, there's a lot of crazy out there. I don't know, some of you watching me are like, I think you're crazy. Maybe. <laughs> All right, whatever. At least I'm a harmless crazy. Uh, but, I mean, there's a lot of crazy thoughts floating out there on the interwebs. You know, you just start scrolling through, you're like, yikes, is that? If that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. Me neither. Or there'll be some people like, hey, God really let me down and sort of give this list of all these things with God. And I'll say, yeah, that God would let me down too, but that's not God, this version that you've put your faith in. Anything less than hitting the strike plate is not going to be strong enough. It's not going to be strong enough for our lives. Again, you know I say this all the time. If Jesus isn't God, I'm out. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go golfing. Actually, I'm terrible at golfing. I wouldn't go golfing. I'd probably sleep. All right. So what have we covered so far in the Apostles' Creed? A few things, really important things. If you want to go back and listen, I'm just going to touch on one real quick, that the creed itself is Trinitarian. It means that if you are a Christian, you necessarily are a Trinitarian. You believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three different modes. If you don't believe that, technically you are not Christian. That's not hitting the strike plate. Interesting. That's one of the things the Apostles' Creed really teases out. Uh, the second is that uh, some people ask, well, why didn't the creed get written down earlier? It was written down in like the end of the second century, around 180 AD, somewhere around there. People are like, that's like 150 years from when Jesus died and rose again. Why did it wait so long? Or why were the Gospels written like 30 years after Jesus? Well, because when you're around and you were there, you don't need anybody to tell you what happened. When that first generation of Christians started dying off, and then you got these weird teachers like Marcion, who's teaching all sorts of stuff, like the God, God the Creator is evil, he was teaching. Because in Gnostic thinking, like, well, the material world is bad. Therefore, the God of the material world is not God. So just lop off the Old Testament. And Jesus has nothing to do with that God. Oh, and by the way, Jesus was just pretending to be human. He wasn't really human. Why? Because if he's made of matter, it's evil. It's bad. So he's just pretending, right? So then somebody had to write it down. The big question was, in what way is Jesus human and in what way is he divine? We notice the Apostles' Creed focuses a ton on Jesus. We just get a blip on the Father and an even smaller blip on the Holy Spirit. And it's almost all about Jesus. Why? Because that was the controversy at that time. In what way is he human? What we see that later creeds reflect other things like more attention to the Holy Spirit, more attention to the Father. So anyway, the Apostles' Creed, very Trinitarian, and it's all about how is Jesus human, how is he divine, how could he be both? You've probably wrestled with that question on some level. And if you haven't, here you go. Wrestle. So, um, I always uh, just think about 
you know, what does that mean for me? I say, well, I have a family, and I operate within that family as a, a dad and a husband. I have a particular authority and responsibility. So I have a kind of authority and responsibility within my family unit where I don't have authority and responsibility over your family. I have a very particular way. I have like a limited authority and responsibility within my own family as dad and husband. And that's always who I am. I say and do things as dad and husband. And if you see how goofy I really am at home, you may not show up on Sunday morning. Anyway. Uh, but I am also a pastor. This is kind of meta with a picture of me by the TV. The, but... Um, I've been given authority and responsibility in a particular way as a pastor. I was ordained. I went through a process where I was conferred authority to hold the position of pastor and all the responsibility and authority that comes with that. I say and do things as a pastor, an ordained office of the church as well. Now, let's do a little thought exercise. I go to the Acme, and I go to the cashier. Who uses cash anymore? Let's say I'm using cash. I go, you know, and I'm going as my role as dad and husband. I'm going to, you know, buy bread and tomatoes or whatever it is I need to get. I'm sure I'll forget something I was supposed to get. <laughs> Every time, I'm, I'm just horrible. So anyway, I go there. I pay, I, I hand the cashier, you know, it was $18. I hand her a 20 she gives me back a one and another 20. Like, I don't know, like something slipped. And she gives me too much change back. Here's a little thought exercise for you. Which me do I respond with? <laughs> Dad and husband. Hey, we made money. <laughs> Pastor. Well, the truth is, is that it's always both, right? While at the store as a husband, I never cease to be a pastor. And you know exactly what would go through my mind? If this lady finds out that she gave me too much change and then she comes to the church and finds out that I'm a pastor, right? So like, <laughs> that's what goes through my head. That's what goes through, like, I can't escape when I get cut off locally. Man, it's like... No, 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 pastor. No matter what I do in whatever role of my life, I never cease being a pastor. I think in a way, it's not exactly the same, but I think in a way it helps us understand a little bit about the humanity and divinity of Jesus. How can Jesus be human and divine? Well, he never ceases being God while he's here as a human. He's both. And somehow, someway, he's able to maintain these two natures. This is how they say it theologically. One person, two natures, human and divine. He's, he's both. And sometimes we see the divine come out, and sometimes we see the human come out. But he's both, fully. Now, why does it matter? And that's really the question here. Why does it matter about whether he's human or divine, or like what that even means? There's a lot at stake, which I alluded to in the beginning of the message. The first is, and these are just a couple of highlights, right? 
a lot of ink's been spilled on this topic in the last 2,000 years. So this is just a quick, like, couple of bullet points. Uh, if he's not human, first of all, he couldn't be a sacrifice on our behalf. Like, why would a, hum- a non-human need to sacrifice on behalf of humans? Like, why would it even make any sense? Um, but also would mean that Jesus was lying. So in those moments when he was with the woman at the well, where he was hanging on the cross, and he says, I'm thirsty. Or he's weeping along with Lazarus's sisters. Or he's tired from a journey. Or he's sharing a relationship with his friends. You would say, well, you would sort of believe what Marcion does in this. He was just pretending to be human. He didn't really feel those things. That really robs us of the power of the gospel, the whole God with us when he's born. That robs you of all of that. It renders it really like inert. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for us. It's God at a distance. Oh yes, I feel your pain. I'm so sorry. Without really feeling our pain. It also mean he was lying to us, right? Which it doesn't, like what does that say about God? So, so wait a second. So God's deceiving us to make us think he was human. How could you say that God is good? You can't. And I think it's important to point out, nobody, when Jesus was alive, questioned his humanity. That all came later, years and years later. All right, now, what if he's not God? Then we're all up, you know what, creek. <laughs> like, we're all, it's, you know, there's no forgiveness of sins if he's not God. It's just a tragic story of this really great man who was killed at the hands of the Roman Empire, a victim. And we ought to revere and remember him, but kind of where it ends again nobody questioned at the time that Jesus was claiming to be God that's why he was on trial that's why he was crucified for blasphemy everybody knew exactly who he was claiming to be it wasn't something made up later that was like why he was hung on the cross so we believe according to the Apostles Creed that talks about it we believe that God is both fully human and fully God, one person, two natures. And you see how important it is to hold those two things in tension, even if we don't really understand it. This really great um, uh, Saint uh, Anselm wrote, wrote it this way. I just love it, because I feel like he puts it perfectly. This was like about a thousand years ago, he said this. Since only God can satisfy the penalty of sin, and only a human ought to, then it is necessary for a God-human to do it. Again, deep end of the pool. Again, splash yourself, whatever you need. Do some stretches. It's okay. I'll, I'll keep going. So where are we so far? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And now today, we're talking about who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, human divine. All right, now we're going to read a passage that we usually read only at Christmas. This is Matthew chapter 1 about the birth of Jesus. Here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Listen, I always say this when I read this passage, but I love Joseph. He did it right. He doesn't even get a speaking part in the play. (laughs) 
he just stands there awkwardly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So we see here in the birth narrative, we see the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and we're like, I don't know know how that, how'd that even, I, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. But what's clear is, Jesus' birth is different, and it matters why. I'm amazed with my own kids, the whole nature versus nurture thing. I'm willing to, it's like 90% nature. I nurture my kids the same, they're they're the same gene pool. They couldn't be any different. They're totally different. And then, you ever have that thing with your kids or your grandkids? where they look at you with a certain expression or they say something and it reminds you of either yourself or your parents, you have a little bit of an emotional reaction to that, don't you? <laughs> You're like, especially if they throw back something that you often put out there and maybe you don't like that about yourself and they come at you and like, oh, like you don't even know. It's an emotional moment. Katie never does that. I'm just for the record, you never do that, okay? I mean, you know. So. so, but it feels like it's nature more than it's nurture. I feel like we're nurturing the same. And all kids are different, right? So, you know, my, uh, you know, one kid, you like tell them to go clean their room. Okay, I'll go clean my room. The other kid, you got to like sit down, like have a back rub. <laughs> hey, buddy. Don't you think you might want to think about cleaning up your room? It's different with each kid. Nature versus nurture, but the nature comes out. Oh, it's a chip off the old block. The nature comes out. In a similar way, I think about the nature of Jesus. Jesus has these two natures, this human and divine nature, and they come out. It's who he is. It's who he is. Both are there present. You know, again, Jesus weeping and laughing and teaching and having friendship, having breakthroughs with people. He even cracks a joke in the Sermon on the Mount about having a plank in your eye. That was a joke. It's like, oh, you, have a spe- you think you have a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye that you're pointing out. You have a plank in your eye. I imagine he got a laugh. So, What does this mean? So we say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Okay. It's funny. I think we don't often think of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I think we think Holy Spirit, we think like space ghost, God, God mist, God something floating through space and time. I don't know, right? I don't know. It's a little bit maybe. 
What does it say? Well, it says Jesus' birth was different. God begets God. Of course, you weren't going to have a human birth and be like, oh, that's God. So it, it sort of helps explain that. Uh, but who is the Holy Spirit? So you go back to the Old Testament, you see every time it talks about the Holy Spirit, we get this wonderful Hebrew word, which uh, if you walk out of here today, you know this word, it's really fun, because it sounds like you need to spit, called ruach, and you got to do the at the end, ruach, that means wind or spirit, and it's the word that's used for the Holy Spirit. That word shows up in the beginning of creation, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters of creation, right? We see the Holy Spirit right from the beginning. Uh, the Holy Spirit is what's operating through the bur- burning bush, the fire that we see. We see uh, Elijah at the cave and the fire and the wind, and that, the Holy Spirit's present. He never sees the Father, he sees the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit's the part of God that we interact with. You have Father, the Creator, the Son has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit's the part that we experience in prayer, in life, in everything. The Holy Spirit's the one that we're interacting with. Um, Charles Stanley. You know who Charles Stanley is? Yeah, yeah, so Charles Stanley wrote this book that I'll never forget. It was great. called The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life. And he really unpacks the idea of the Holy Spirit as person, as Father and Son is, and how we ought to be praying and name the Holy Spirit in prayer, which I think is a really cool thing that we sort of, I don't know, we, we don't do that as much. Uh, anyway, uh, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament descends upon kings as a sign of their anointing. Uh, he's connected with the Messiah. But still, it's kind of a mystery. Wind, breath, life. In the New Testament, it doesn't really get any clearer. The, the Greek word used there is pneuma, which means wind or breath. It's the same thing, just a different language. So uh, we know that this Holy Spirit, this pneuma, was conceived, conceived Jesus, indwelled Jesus, descended upon him to reveal his identity to the world. This is my son with whom I write. The Holy Spirit descends. That's the Trinitarian moment when he's baptized. Jesus promises it to his followers. He says the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to be with you just like he's been with me. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is released to the church. And that's why we, when we put our faith in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Which is, I know, it's like your mind will just bend like crazy on this stuff. But this is what Christians have said they believe since the beginning. So, the breath of God is present in the creation and recreation of humanity through Jesus Christ. present in creation when everything was made and then sin took its ugly turn we experience creation again new creation new life some would say born again through what jesus does there's a moment too where jesus breathes and gives life jesus of course we see him resurrect people okay listen this is a ridiculous example but remember the movie et Anybody my age and older, you remember E.T.? Remember when, he, remember when he saw that movie? All right, listen, you've had a long time to watch it. I'm going to spoil it. <laughs> remember when E.T. dies? I was wrecked. I'm at the movie theater. I'm like, how dare you take me to this movie? 
E.T. dies, and he, somehow he was connected with the kid. E.T. is a Christ figure in that movie. He's somehow connected with the kid. The kid's life depends on E.T. dying, allowing himself to die. He dies so the kid, Elliot, can live. And then he resurrects. And we see him take, like, the dead plant comes to life. You remember that scene? He has the power of life, sacrificially giving it. I think about Jesus and I think of him, the breath of life itself. He can speak life just as his father can. As he pulls Lazarus out of the tomb and has him walk in his own two feet. And he does the same thing. We put our faith in him. He breathes life into us. Second Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So the Holy Spirit is personal. He bears witness. He cries and speaks. He makes intercessions. He can be grieved. He teaches, leads, and guides. So we see in Scripture, the Holy Spirit's like personal. Again, the Holy Spirit is the part of God that we interact with. I know this is like, geez, Pastor, like, do you have cliff notes? I get it. I, I, I know it's a lot. But I really do think the more we think about this, the more it sets us up to live a life of faith because this faith is so strong, the obstacles are going to go flying off. It's like incoming, right? Life incoming. No effect on your faith. If anything, it gives you more resolve. Not because you're closed-minded, because, because you're secure in this God that you say you believe in. Hebrews says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, I, you've probably thought a lot more about the virgin birth. Um, I'm sure Joseph had a lot of questions. The virgin birth is important because it means that Jesus was not tainted by, uh, by sin. It's, it's, the virgin birth says the purity and the paternity of Jesus. We, and this is a different from us in Catholic belief, we don't believe that Mary was without sin. We believe Mary was a, a human, an incredibly faithful human, who we ought to revere as such. We don't believe that she was without sin, but we believe because it's her and the Holy Spirit, his child, that there is a perfection where Jesus is not tainted by sin. And then there's no question who the dad is if it's a miraculous virgin birth. It also means he's born under the law in obedience to God. Jesus was the one who was perfectly obedient to God from birth. He was the only one like that. And experienced the human condition. Again, Hebrews fleshes it out for us, uh, pun intended. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Again, St. Anselm, since 
only God can satisfy the penalty of sin and only a human ought to, then it is necessary for a God human to do it. We could say it this way. God was the only, Jesus was the only 200% man, 100% human, 100% divine. Okay, you with me? You guys good? All right, did you bring a snack? All right. There's another uh, kind of cool way that this is said in Scripture, this idea that Jesus is the second Adam. And the idea, the thinking there is, the first Adam came and wrecked everything. <laughs> first Adam came and then sin was introduced in the world. But Jesus is the version that Adam should have been. He is the, the pure one who maintains his purity and he makes everything right. And it says the second Adam is even more of a gift of grace than the first. So uh, it says it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again. Pastor, geez, there's a lot to think about. Remember what's at stake. A lesser version of God won't be big enough to fully trust. I know so many people, sadly, it's like tragedy hits their life or they go through a hard time. And there's a part of me, it's hard because it's like, I weep along with them in that time. But what I want for them so much is to know this God that is big enough to face anything. To know that God is going to see you through. God's never going to let go in this life or the one to come. Jesus loves me in my humanity, not in spite of my humanity. He's truly God with me, Emmanuel. He loves me. Again, he's not surprised by my bad behavior. He loves me through it. And Jesus is able to forgive me of my sin. He's also God for me, who went to the cross so that I wouldn't have to, who suffered what I can't even imagine. Before I could ever utter his name, he offered me his grace. I think the hope of the gospel is based on these two natures and why it's such an important part of the Apostles' Creed. I want to encourage you, think on this some more this week. Maybe there's some ways that you can do that. Maybe there's some ways that you can kind of think on this because this God of ours is so much bigger than you might think. Me, I like, you know, I go to the supermarket. I want all my ground beef in the cellophane. I don't want any blood on it. I want it nice and clean. I don't want to see how it's made. God forbid we, our civilization gets to a point where I have to go hunt for my own food. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. <laughs> I have no skills. <laughs> right? I feel like, though, we do that with God. We try to sanitize and domesticate God. 
So God is in this nice little package that I'm going to keep and I'm going to take home and I'm going to pull them out whenever I need something. That's not God. It's like C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember what he wrote about Aslan, the lion who was the Christ figure? And uh, one of the children goes, is he safe? He goes, no, he's not safe, but he's good. This God of ours is not something that you package and kind of stow away. This God of ours is unpredictably beautiful, uncontrollable, which is exactly how he should be if he's the God that we think he is. Let this wild, adventurous God speak into your life today. And for all of us, just a reminder that it matters what we say when we say, I believe. Amen. Amen.